I am joined once again by Harris Kupperman. Everyone knows him as Cuppy, an investor and founder and chief investment officer of Praetorian Capital. Cuppy, welcome back. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. What do you make of the tremendous turmoil in specific uh, regional banking, uh, regional banks, as well as banking stocks, which are going up and down and extremely volatile? What, what are your first level thoughts? Well, I mean, in terms of the bank stocks themselves, I mean, they're just reacting to the news of who's, uh, you know, failing and who's getting, you know, runs in the bank. And um, I, I think it's all, you know, really quite predictable. Um, but in the end, you know, I don't think this is like uh, 2008. This isn't you know, a great financial crisis. You know, maybe it'll lead to something bigger in the future. But, you know, what's going on right now is you have, you know, the banks that lent to uh, Ponzi schemes. Like, of course, it was going to fail. And you have, you have the bank uh, that, you know, banked all the crypto coins. Like, of course, it's going to fail. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's all like relatively obvious. And, you know, I think it's interesting today where, you know, the 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 Fed kind of stepped in and said, okay, we, we took down the banks that, you know, were, were bad actors here. And now let's, you know, draw a line and say like these line, these banks here deserve to exist. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to, you know, move some things around and then kind of ignore some rules we have. And we're going to make sure that some of these other banks that are a, a bit wobbly exist. And uh, I think that's probably the right thing to do. You know, you, you don't really want to have a panic. You just kind of want to get, rid of the bad actors that were doing, you know, dumb things, you know, you know, banks are meant for, you know, storing deposits and lending. They're not there to, you know, prop up dog walking apps. <laughs> and uh, let's talk about the deposit side, the liabilities of the bank, which are pulled extraordinarily quickly. Bank loans have existed for a very long time, but there's something about the nature of all these venture capitalists pulling all of their money within just a few hours that the FDIC took it down in the middle of the day, not uh, you know after market close, which I, I think it, it likes to do. Do you think there's something different psychologically about you know everyone's online, everyone you know following uh, the, the news so quickly that bank runs are maybe uh, more more prone to happen? Well, I, I think when you look at a Silicon Valley bank, you really had a couple of large uh, VC groups that are all friends with each other. And they told all their portfolio companies, you know, hundreds of companies, like, get your money out before the other guy does. And so it, it cascaded really fast. I mean, like, look, if my bank here uh, had a bank run, it, I'd have to actually go to the bank and do something. <laughs> you know, it, it's very different. And, you know, I don't really keep that much money at the bank, so it wouldn't be worth the effort of standing in line to do something. Um, and so you know, I think it's just built different in a way. Because you only have a couple of, you know, portfolio managers of these uh, VC groups. I mean, I think it's really interesting to look at. In, in 1907, there was a bank run, and J.P. Morgan got a couple of his drinking buddies together, and they said, "We're going to stop this bank run, you know, because we, you know, want to." But this is before we had a, a Federal Reserve. You know, th this bank run's bad for our business. And you know, you fast forward a hundred years, and the Silicon Valley guys say. Let's have a bank run. Let, let's really get the money out as fast as we can. And I'm going to tweet as we're you know, withdrawing the money. I'm going to tweet to all my friends, like, you guys need to go faster. JP Morgan you know, wanted to build something up in Silicon Valley. Couldn't care less. That, you know, I think it, it is cultural as much as it is technological. Uh, the emergency measures enacted by FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, Treasury, and the Federal Reserve on Sunday. By the way, we're recording this on Thursday, March 16th. Those emergency measures passed on Sunday. 
how effective do you think uh, they will be in preventing future bank panics? And the question number two, was it a bailout? So bank panics only happen when people lose faith in their bank. You know, I'm not particularly worried about my bank. Uh, you know, I've dealt with my bank for a long time. They're, they're, they're kind of like too incompetent to fail. You know, I'm just not that worried. So I'm not getting in line. Plus, it takes effort. Um, you know, I think you need to really be worried. I think, you know, Silicon Valley Bank failed because a lot of people know what uh, the, the bank's lending money on and they were really scared about it. You know, uh, SBNY failed because people knew what was in there. And they got really scared. Uh, I think you can pass as many laws as you want and move the pieces around the chessboard. When people think their, their bank is a house of cards, they're going to get their money back. Um, you know, and people don't want to, even if you are told, yes, you're going to get 100 cents of the dollar back, no one wants to, you know, deal with the paperwork and, you know, I got to do this, I got to do this other thing. Like it's, it takes effort. It's just easier to give your money to a too big to fail bank or bank with someone that's an adult. And so I don't think there's ever going to be able to stop bank runs. I mean, the history of bank runs is that these things, Happened. I mean, the Federal Reserve was set up specifically to avoid this problem, and it still happens. Um, so I, I don't think it's going to succeed in what they're looking to do in terms of a bailout. Yeah, of course it's a bailout. Um, but it's a weird sort of bailout in that, you know, the, the money goes from here to here, to this guy's pocket, to that guy's pocket. And then in the end, you know, there's a tax on the banks that did the right thing that, you know, didn't do illegal things and didn't do crazy things. And I'd be really upset if I was a regional bank that ran a conservative business and suddenly I have to pay for someone else's sins. I mean, that's called communism. Kabi, you've been known to be a value investor who likes to buy bargains when they fall sharply in uh, value. We've had a lot of stocks go on sale on Monday. Um, you know, I, I won't I won't name the names of people who are following this. They know they know what I'm talking about. Where. They were at times they were trading, you know, 80, 90, 95% of where they were a month ago. Are any of those stocks a sector that you think you might uh, get into? And if the answer is yes, is it an investment or a, or a quick trade? You mean in terms of banking stocks or yeah, yeah. in terms of all banking things? stocks? Banking stocks. No, because I don't think they're good investments. I mean, we, we've traded them before, you know, and there's a lot of fear. You step in in front of the freight train and Occasionally you get nailed and usually you make money and it's a probabilities thing. And, you know, it's, it's, we'll see how it all works out. But, you know, we've put some positions on, but they're not particularly large positions. Um, I don't want to name names, but, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, when, when there's a burning building and everyone's running out, I'm usually the idiot running in. Like, <laughs> over my career, it's mostly worked, though. <laughs> I've got some battle scars. So, so we did a bit of that. But no, I don't think these are actually particularly good businesses to be in. I mean, banks are highly regulated, low return on capital businesses. I mean, it's kind of like the post office. And, you know, the, the, these these companies have, like, they, it was a freewheeling time before the, the GFC. And these companies found creative ways to make a lot of money. And then it turned out that a lot of the money they made was fake. And a lot of them went bankrupt. And, you know, the government stepped in and put a bunch of rules in place. It's much harder to make money now. And so you have these bureaucratic organizations with a lot of regulation and a lot of paperwork to earn, if you're really good at this, kind of a low teens return on equity. I think you can do better in much other places, particularly because these things have this combustibility to them that you know adds a lot of risk for not enough upside. Right. So that's on the investment case. But when you know a stock 
collapses in in value, there's a chance the panic is overblown and it's not as bad as people think. There's a chance that the panic is is accurate and it's at fair value, or there's a chance that actually it, the stock should be down a, a lot more. What's your your general sense on on, on the sort of troubled banking stocks? Um, I think it's all going to go lower. I mean, yeah. we're, we're at phase one of this crisis where some guys wired some money out, <laughs> and a bunch, of, you know, and a bunch of banks almost failed because people wanted their money back. I mean, phase two of the crisis is when interest rates are higher and people can't refinance their commercial real estate. I mean, you've got a bunch of office buildings that are going to be empty. Like, who's paying the more? Who's paying the rent? Who's going to pay the mortgage? And you go to refinance these things, and interest rates are a couple hundred bips higher. I think a lot of people are going to mail their keys in. I mean, it's not going to be like the GFC where all of a sudden the music stops. I think you have a multi-year period of, uh, you know, adjustments to loans and, you know, extend and pretend and guys are going to go on interest only and all sorts of things that will get moved around to buy time. But eventually, I think a lot of these, uh, you know, properties are going to send the keys back to the, the lender. You, know, you can't, you can only buy so much time, but if, you know, you underwrote this thing at a three cap and you financed it at two in 2019 and suddenly it's an eight cap, you're financing at six, like that, that six financing on a three of cash, like it doesn't work. Like, you know, the, the owner has to, when, you, when it goes to refi, the owner has to put more equity in, you know, you have to do a giant debt pay down. Like you can extend and pretend a little, but I think a lot of these banks are going to suffer because, you know, they still have to pay out the depositors at much higher rates going forward. And, I think a lot of this crisis is caused by the fact that these banks never really paid for over a decade. They never really paid the depositors anything in terms of deposit fees. And so when uh, people said, hey, I can make 4% in a money market, I don't need this bank anymore, like the, the business model died. And, you know, I think these banks could have uh, paid the depositors a lot more in terms of their checking account. And they probably wouldn't have the runs on the bank, you know, as they started. But then the business model doesn't work because they were probably lending out at less than four. So, no, I think a lot of these things are just going to be miserable investments where they just stumble along with a lot of equity raised and a lot of problems. It's, it seems like a terrible place to put your money. Mm. Uh, right. And there's a saying about banks, I'm sure you've heard it many times, that rising rates are good for banks. High interest rates are good for banks. Is that true? Yeah, it's true to a point, you know, and there's a tipping point. If you raise interest rates 100 or 200 bips, yeah, you know, you... Over a couple of year period, you know, you get paid, you have, you have some floating uh, asset on the bank balance sheet. So that gets, you know, paid more almost instantly. And the, the depositors only slowly adjust to their expectations. And, you know, no one really gets into financial trouble because what's 100 or 200 bips. And it's a slow process. When you have the fastest rate hiking cycle that we've had, like stuff's going to break and it's, it's not going to work. And I think we've hit that tipping point because we, we, we've learned that a bunch of banks that were, you know, thinly capitalized can't take what happens when interest rates go up because their bonds go down and their equity goes uh, poof. And so we just had that happen. When it, when it goes slow, it, it's much better. You know, if you look at, you know, say Japan, where they're slowly raising rates, like it's, it's going to be incrementally better, mainly just because it's so miserable for so long. But no, I don't, I mean, I think it passed a point it doesn't work. Right. Yeah. Japan is, it's very slow. I don't, I don't know if it's possible to be, to be uh, slower than <laughs> Japan. Right. Um, I think in, in Japan, they're going to go, you know, they're going to do 25 and then they'll stop for a bit and they'll do another 25. And it'll be like adding oxygen to these banks that have had literally just no earning capacity for, you know, over a decade. And I think that's 
you know, an intelligent way to do it. If you know, that's a good place for a bank to be. It doesn't mean it's it's good for you know the Japanese monetary experiments. Right. So you don't think this is the great financial crisis? You don't think it's going to be a series of dominoes? That being said, you're you're not. You don't think the banks are a good business model? So you're, you know, some somewhere in between there. What are your thoughts on the impact of this banking turmoil? on the market and the the economy that the federal reserve is the federal reserve going to pivot sooner than it was if there was no banking crisis uh our interest rates going to be lower our banks going to lend less and inflation is going to be lower what are the knock-on effects of of this turmoil i don't think there's going to be much in the way of effects i <laughs> Look, you had the shitcoin bank, they went out of business, and another shitcoin bank went out of business, then the dog walking app bank went out of business, and then, you know, the, the, the Fed drew a line in the sand, and, you know, they moved the pieces around, and in two weeks, we'll be on to some other problem. I don't think anything's going to change. I, uh, I, I wish something was going to change, because, you know, when something changes, and as an inflection investor, when stuff changes, there's opportunity. But I just don't see it, really. I, I think incrementally very little changes. I, I think banks are going to keep lending. I think interest rates are likely to stay high. And as a result, banks need to replace a lot of their low earning assets with higher learning, earning assets. And as a result, they're going to be much more incentivized to make loans and you know, grow the, the yield of their portfolio. And so I, I think the net result is probably going to be reasonably good for the economy. I, I have this very different view than a lot of people do in terms of uh, interest rates. I think uh, 0% interest rate is very deflationary because banks don't want to lend because you don't get paid for it. And I think raising interest rates is actually highly inflationary because banks are much more incentivized to lend and, you know, it grows the money supply and it grows economic activity. And I, I, I think it's going to be really good for the economy if they keep raising rates. And of course, you know, if you're commercial real estate, that's terrible for you. But, you know, the, the economy is more than private equity and commercial real estate. Right. Uh, so you don't think it will affect the how high the Federal Reserve w- w- would hike to because a, a week and a half ago, the market thought it would get to 5.6%, whereas now uh, the market thinks, you know, we're going to get uh, like cuts this year. So there's been a kind of a, a huge panic in, in the bond market. I mean, it's been one of the biggest moves in uh, rates in my career in terms of, you know, what, what's just happened on a two year. Maybe they're right. Maybe they're not. I mean, I think the Federal Reserve... Uh, historically is, you know, continued going until they break something. And I just don't know if the crypto bank is, a, you know, a something. They, I think they're going to keep going until something actually breaks. But as you see things sort of like fraying around the edges, they're probably not too many hikes away from actually breaking something real. And that's at the point where they take a pause and maybe drop rates. I, I don't know. We'll have to play it out. But Thus far, I don't think anything's really changed. I mean, I think they've been pretty clear they're going to do 25s and keep doing 25s till they break stuff. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com slash sign up. 
You can also get 10% off using the discount code GUIDANCE10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. Things have broken, but nothing systemically important, in, in your view, has broken yet. Business as usual. Where does that lead you as, as an investor? Where are you finding bargains, things that are attractive? We know it's not in the banking sector. Where is it? Well, let's look at the other thing that dropped. Uh, oil dropped precipitously, you know. Uh, a week ago, oil, and I'm talking about West, uh, West Texas, was just over 80. And we got down to 65 yesterday uh, at, at the, you know, the, the, the depth of the crisis. I mean, that's a 20% move in five trading days. Like, if the price of oil drops, the price of everything touching oil has dropped, you know, even more because it's, you know, levered to what happens in oil. And I think these things are great investments. I, I think you had a situation where a bunch of hedge funds were long oil on one side and long, you know, some sort of interest rate derivative on the other. And two years moved, they got a margin call, so they sold their oil. And, you know, it's, just, it's, it's the, the history of hedge funds is kind of funny because, you know, if you told me that the, the business strategy was when the price goes down, you sell it. When it goes down more, you sell more of it. And if it goes up, you buy more of it. I'd say that's really stupid. You know, you want to buy low and sell high. But, you know, these guys make all the fees. So I, I don't really know. I mean, I think they're more of a marketing business than investors. But um, the I think these guys got into trouble. And we've heard of a couple of hedge funds that massively degrowed, that uh, suffered pretty egregious losses. And they sold their oil and you know the price dropped $15 in a week. And I think that's where all the opportunity is. I mean, the global economy is very strong. Uh, China is reopening. Uh, India, a bunch of Asia is just booming. And I think the demand for oil is going to grow quite a lot this year, probably way more than most uh, people are estimating. And on the supply side, I don't see much growth. I mean, in the U.S., we already have uh, rigs getting uh, put down where you know, the rig count's declining. Uh, you don't see a lot of capital expenditure. It's, since 2014, there really hasn't been much expenditure. I mean, if demand grows 2 million barrels this year, like, where does the supply come from? If anything, you know, you know, you're going to see, uh, you know, supply flatline, give or take a little. And, you know, I just think you're going to see quite a lot of demand growth. I think the deficit, which was reasonably large last year, is just going to expand. Of course, you know, you had this offset of China kind of locking down for six months. So all the numbers look kind of messy. And I think it's messing with people's you know, analysis. But I think by the second half of the year, you're going to have really sizable deficits and it should be really good for energy prices. And, you know, <laughs> when you look around the world, you know, everyone's been complaining about inflation. But here at $65 oil, that seems like the only asset that um, hasn't inflated in a while. You know, it's I mean, it really hasn't moved. I mean, it's in a range. But I mean, $65 oil, that was like 2005, you know, and just think of all the inflation we've had since then. And as an investor, you buy the thing that's really cheap. And, you know, $65 oil, a lot of the marginal producers aren't even economic anymore. And that's why they're going to stop drilling. And if you don't produce more of it, the price goes up. So no, that, that's what I've been focusing on. Mm, right. So we have oil in April of 2020 going from ne less than zero negative prices to, I think, June of 2022, uh, over $120. And it's gone from $120 from the, the summer of last year to now, as you say, less than $70. What was the supply demand picture uh, then when it was at $120? What is the supply demand picture now? And to what degree does that change in the supply demand picture explain the fall in price? Or do you say, hey, actually, the supply and demand indicates the price should be higher, but but it hasn't? What, what do you think? 
So when it got to 120, clearly there was uh, more demand than supply. And, you know, there's a bunch of different acronyms that publish data and they all kind of disagree with each other. And you know, I don't think it's possible to really say within a million or two million barrels what the actual number is. So I, I don't really focus on that. I focus more on what's changed since the baseline. So let's look at the, the summer of last year when oil was 120, what's changed since the baseline? China locked down. They, they locked down for what's called 150 days and 3 million barrels were offline. Like we're, we're talking about like 450,000 barrels, 450 million barrels. You have the U.S. dumping almost a quarter billion barrels of uh, oil. You have uh, the, the the winter here being quite warm, so a lot less heating oil demand. I mean, you start adding up you know bits and pieces here and there, and you're looking at a billion barrel change in the second half of the year last year in terms of uh, you know less oil consumption. And as a result, the price, of course, it dropped, you know, and then they uh, told Russia that they couldn't get, uh, you know, the market price. The Russians had to sell a discount and then the Europeans completely cut them off. So they had to sell to India. I mean, the Russians aren't stupid. They said, you know, here's the deadline. We're going to dump all the oil we can. And so they, they, you know, they dumped, a, you know, 100 million barrels and then they did another, you know, 100 million barrels of refined product or whatever the exact numbers are. No one will ever know. But it's somewhere in the, you know. 100 to 200 million barrels combined that they dumped of their inventory. And so the, the world was swimming in oil around Christmas time. Mm-hmm. And we're chewing through it now. And I think in Q1, we're probably going to be roughly balanced, maybe a slight surplus. And then I think by Q2, as China reopens and jet uh, demand grows and all these other things reverse, you know, we have a bit more SPR release here in the US. We've got to trudge through. But as these things kind of reverse, I think incrementally each month, uh, the, the deficit's going to get larger. and you know, expanding deficits make the price go up. And I think we're kind of right at the nadir here. And it, it seems so fitting that all the hedge funds sold below. <laughs> they, they do every time. <laughs> when you said uh, America was selling, putting barrels on the market, you were referring that we were, uh, Biden administration, releasing barrels from the SPR, Strategic Petroleum Reserve. How right. big of a factor do you think that was in keeping the price of oil down or you know, causing the price to, to go down. And yeah, I mean, do, do you expect, I know there was a time where they said above a certain price, we're going to release from the reserve below uh, a certain price will actually be net buyers. I think it was maybe $68. The price of oil, I think is below that now. And are they doing a, are they, doing, is, is Biden doing a, an oil buyback? Of course not. <laughs> they're not buying any oil. I, they might do some token barrels, but they're really not going to buy. Um, but in terms of did it matter? Of course it mattered. If you drop a million barrels a, a day on the market and then China goes offline for another two to three million barrels a day, like that's three to four million barrels. That's a lot of barrels. You know, it's uh, going to swing it from a decently large deficit to a smallish surplus. And as that reverses, I think you end up uh, ending this year in the four to five million barrels a day deficit range. And uh, I don't know if China plans to lock down again, but it was kind of crazy they did it the first time. So they probably won't do it the second time. And um, if uh, the U.S. is kind of out of oil to dump, like where does that oil come from? At some point, you have to actually drill for it. I mean, that's where oil comes from. And like I said, I mean, the, the rate count's declining. No one's drilling. So, no, I, th- I think you're set up uh, for oil to have a pretty crazy uh, move. Um and yeah, I mean, I think people look at oil and they, they think of these things going in linear lines, you know, it goes from this price and it just keeps going and going. That's not how commodities act. You know, they get priced on the marginal barrel 
Oil is a very political commodity, the seasonality to it. Uh, I, I think it's doing exactly what you'd expect it to do during a multi-year uh, bull market. It, it overshots the upside. It destroyed a little bit of demand. Politicians meddled and they found some supply and the, the price got dropped. And then people stopped producing as much. So it's going to go back up and it's just going to, you know, kind of do a sign curve, but, uh, you know, kind of uh, inflecting higher. And I think it's doing exactly what I expected it to do. I, I'm a little bit surprised at the amplitude of the moves, but, uh, you know, I, I would have thought it would have been, you know, a little bit less whipsaw but it is what it is. Mm. So do you think the marginal barrel of demand is now coming from China? Of course. I mean, there's, there's over a billion of them. And yeah. I mean, I think people lose track of the fact because I, I travel a lot. That's, that's like really my hobby. You know, there's six billion people on this earth who most of them don't have refrigerators. They don't have washing machines. They don't have cars. Um, I mean, they don't have electricity or barely have any electricity. And, you know, those people want the same standard of living that we have and on a per capita basis. And I, I believe in human progress. And I believe that these people will figure out in my lifetime how to have a similar standard of living. And, you know, when you think of how much energy gets consumed as that process happens, it, it's kind of mind numbing because, you know, we barely can produce enough energy for just the billion or so of us that have a first world standard of living. And um, I, I just think the demand for energy is insatiable and it's got to come from somewhere. And as a result, as you know, this progress in GDP growth globally, the demand just grows every year. Hmm. Uh, what have you made of the spectacular rise and fall and in, in, in insane volatility of natural gas? It's called the widow maker for a reason. Uh, you know, natural gas trades on what happens in the weather. And despite a lot of people thinking they could predict the weather, like no one really knows. And as a result, it's insanely volatile. And I don't trade it because it's crazy. You know, there's things that I think you could predict and predicting if it's gonna be cold next week is not one of them. <laughs> so no, I mean, there's people who trade this and make and lose absolute fortunes. And it seems like almost every year, some hedge fund blows up short. And uh, that's just part of the, the game called nat gas. But, but for me, nat gas is really just a, you know, it, it's a byproduct of oil production. And, you know, it's a reason that I think the U.S. will see a lot more uh, industrial activity than a lot of other places just because we're, you know, unusually blessed with this uh, cheap nat gas. But it's going to be crazy volatile and, you know, <laughs> good luck trading it. <laughs> Cuppy, I know you were uh, in favor of expressing your bullish view on oil by direct exposure to the commodity itself with futures and options. And you were in favor of that over their perhaps more conventional play of buying oil producers, uh, pipeline companies. Has your Is your thesis uh, still the same or has it evolved at all? There's been a bit of evolution, um, but for the most part, look, I... The, the way you fix an energy crisis, and we're about to have an energy crisis, is you spend hundreds of billions of dollars incrementally each year looking for oil and producing oil. And I'd much rather own the companies that are going to you know, be beneficiaries of all, of all this spending, especially because those companies have really been crushed during the seven-year bear market where there wasn't much spending. And you can buy those companies at fractions of replacement costs, and I think they're going to really earn a ton of money. Whereas... I think a lot of the producers are at risk of uh, geopolitics where the price of oil goes up and politicians say, let's do an excess profits tax. Let's do a carbon tax. Let's, you know, hurt these guys. And as a result, I think the profitability might get impaired. I, th I think you take a lot of risk and, you know, 
we, we've seen the UK do this. And if the UK can do it, you know, the US can also. And, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's a scarier place to invest. And, you know, that's, that's the reason I just own the, I, I mostly just own uh, the futures and I own futures options. And I own some of the, the uh, services companies. But I have recently bought uh, one producer and it's kind of odd for me to be uh, buying a producer because I'm not really big fans of producers. Uh, my experience with uh, producers is they take your money and they, you know, drill for buried treasure. And I, I don't want them taking my money and looking for buried treasure. Uh, I found most oil executives to really be focused on how much oil they're producing. I guess they, they, they go to the country club and they get to brag to their friends how much oil they're producing when they should be bragging about how much money they're producing. And it's just like a weird mentality amongst these oil guys that they just want to, you know, drill holes all over the place. Um, and often they don't even ask if the holes are profitable. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so um, I've really hidden from uh, uh, investing in producers. Uh, the last time I seriously looked at a, a producer was a company called Sandridge. Uh, and at the time you could buy it for about a dollar and they had $2 a share of cash and it was profitable. And, uh, you know, it was, you got to have a, this free look at if energy prices recovered in the summer of 2020, you're going to make a lot of money. And, you know, <laughs> I told everyone I knew about it, to, you know, to go buy some. And no one really wanted to talk about energy stocks. And stock went from a dollar. I mean, it went past $20. Like we sold too soon because we always sell too soon. But it was really great for us. Um, and I think you have a similar situation now with this company called Journey Energy, which is listed in Canada. The ticker symbol is J-O-Y. Uh, and my main reason for investing it is that I, I like the guy running it. I, he's previously built two other companies by uh, acquiring assets, often distressed assets. He's kind of a, a value investor. He's not buying the A-plus uh, oil assets. He's not buying you know, Permian acreage and drilling holes. He's buying older assets that are low decline. He's uh, trying to improve the operations. But he's buying these things very cheaply as a value investor, and he's uh, using financial leverage, uh, issuing a few shares. And if you look back in history, uh, if you buy low decline assets at periods of time where the price of oil drops, uh, and then the price of oil goes up, you make a lot of money. And uh, you know these sort of roll up strategies are amazingly successful. It's what everyone should be doing in the energy patch. It, it's what private guys do, but public guys just for whatever reason want to look for buried treasure instead. And I think he's doing what uh, you know the, the right business strategy is of produce cash flow, buy more oil assets, and not drill too much. You drill a little to keep the production going, but you, you you're mainly focused on just just consolidating assets. And you know go, going back to what we talked about a few minutes ago. Price of oil goes up, price of oil goes down, it goes up to a new high, it goes down again. Like this is the oil cycle. And what, what's interesting about the oil cycle is that uh, oil guys like to borrow money and drill holes. And so a lot of guys borrowed a lot of money at 120 and drilled holes and suddenly oil's uh, 65. And they're probably in financial trouble. And if I, you know, it, it, I think the business plan as I see it at Journey is that Alex, the CEO, he's going to now, you know, use his cash flow to buy one of these guys in trouble. And he's going to, acquire it very, very cheaply at a time when other guys uh, are, are really focused on their dividends and their buybacks and drilling their holes. He's just going to buy these guys to get in trouble. And, and as you look at the sign curve and there's a sign curve on the way up at the bottom of each of the cycles, he's going to buy someone. And then on the way up, he's going to earn a lot of cash flow, pay off the debt and do it again. And, you know, if you have low decline assets, it's just a really profitable strategy. So in, in conclusion, we, we bought a lot of shares and we have a couple percent of the company. So I'm talking my book here. I've found that sometimes when people talk about valuations of oil companies, they say it's trading at uh, you know six times 
earnings or six times free cash flow. But when they talk about earnings, they don't uh, uh, include the cost that they have to reinvest in the business, which in oil fracking is huge. And then for free cash flow, you're not, you're, they don't include the, the debt. Uh, how do you value something like Journey? What, what is a multiple? Is it a free cash flow, net income? Do you think a, a different multiple? And then at what price of oil does Journey you know, start breaking even? At what price does it start making a lot of money? And at what price of oil is it is it unprofitable? Because I know with you know ExxonMobil, it's it needs 30, 40 barrels a dollar break even. Some fracking companies, you know, in 2014 needed $90 barrel oil. And I know maybe that's the economics have improved a little bit. But yeah, tell me a little bit about how how you value uh, uh, journeys, journey energy. So I think the simplest way to value an oil company is looking at a metric called PDP. Uh, that, that you're producing wells and what you expect to get out of these wells over the, the, the life of the wells at a, at a reasonably high discount rate using uh, the current strip and using basically your current costs. It's, it's basically, you know, how much cash do you expect to get out and then how much you have to put in to get that cash out of the stuff that's already producing. So you, you don't have much capital expenditure. You've already spent the money and then you discount it back. Uh, and I think it's a really good starting point because it, you can normalize lots of energy assets on this PDP metric. I mean, I don't think cash flow is a useful metric in any way because a lot of that cash just goes right back into the ground. It's not your cash. I mean, if you don't put it back in the ground, you don't really have an oil field, you know, in a couple of years. And, you know, that, that cash flow number also is very tied to the price of oil. And so you'll go from making money to losing money to making money. It's, it's a kind of dumb metric. I mean, the best metric is just PDP. And then usually from that PDP, you can adjust it at various uh, oil prices. You plug in the oil price, and you can say, hey, this is what, you know, the price goes up $10, well, the PDP value goes up. And that, you know, that's kind of like your, you know, your snowball, you know? And every time you, you know, uh, drill a well, it's like you grab a handful of snow and you stick it on the snowball. And, you know, the snowball might, you know, as you move it around, you might lose a little, you add some, but that's your snowball and you're hoping it just gets bigger over time. And I guess the best way to, to, to think about it, uh, uh, an oil company with, with Journey, it's trading at about half a PDP, which uh, is, is quite cheap. Most oil companies trade at a premium to PDP. Uh, I, I think the company's, you know, it's the smallest company in Canada. It's kind of been misunderstood uh, because if you own a lot of drill locations in the Permian, you can say, look, for the next five years, next 10 years, these are the drill economics. We're going to keep doing holes. And everyone says, OK, I have line of sight. I build a model. With Journey, what you have is Alex saying, Someone's going to get wounded. I don't know how big the, the the check we have to write is. We might have to raise some equity. We might not. But we're going to do everything very accretive because I own a lot of shares. You know, Alex owns a lot of shares. But it, it's, a, it's a harder, more confusing story for Wall Street to build a model around. You basically have to spend some time with Alex on the phone and understand that he's done this twice and he knows what he's doing. Um, in terms of the break-evens, it's actually quite low. Uh, you know, in, in Canada, you have sliding royalties. It protects you. Uh, I don't have the exact number, but it, it, it's it's pretty low. I'm, I'm, I'm not particularly worried. And they don't have much financial leverage either. So, you know, you, you, you don't have to worry about, you know, the debts and all that other stuff. Like, they're, they're in good shape. Mm, right. And also, are they acquiring or did they just buy some sort of power plant? Yeah. Um, I guess, uh, what's it? Uh, necessity is a mother invention. Uh when power prices spiked in Alberta, they said, well, we have all this nat gas. We're not really getting paid well for our nat gas. Let's produce our own power. And then from there, they said, well, we're producing so much power. Let's go sell it to uh, the Canadian uh, power system. And then from there, they said, hey, this is a really good business. Let's do some more of this. 
And, you know, uh, it, it's going to end up being uh, a business that has a lot of cash flow from the power gen assets. And, you know, power gen is a lot more stable than uh, oil and gas and that gas prices. So, you know, it, it deserves a higher multiple because of the stability and the reliability of it. And they could be producing that gas for a very, very long time. So I think those assets will be quite valuable over time as they continue to uh, basically buy up equipment and produce, you know, electricity. Mm. And then how do you think about hedges on oil? You know, some oil companies hedge 70% of their production, so they're protected on 70%. They lock it in at a certain price. Others are you know, quite unhedged, some some no hedged. Um, what's your philosophy on the matter? And what does a journey uh, have with regards to hedge, hedges? So journey isn't uh, isn't hedged, really. They, they have some net gas hedges, which I think are rolling off very soon. Uh, in terms of hedges... Um, Look, if you're going to run a very levered uh, book financially, you have to hedge. If you have low net debt, you don't need to hedge. I mean, hedging really, you know, it cuts off your upside and you know, protects your downside to a certain extent. But if you have the balance sheet that you can uh, live through the shakeouts in oil, and there's always going to be shakeouts in oil, then you can, you know, ignore the hedges and not, you know, miss out on your upside. Because, you know, when it gets above 100, you're, you're making a lot of money. You don't really want to, you know, cut that off in any way. So... No, Journey's been basically running unhedged, though when the price of oil spikes up, they sometimes put some hedges on. But I think that that's the right way to do it. When the price goes up, you lock some in. And when the price goes down, you do nothing, as opposed to this blanket approach of let's just hedge, you know, 25% for the next five years and just not really care what the price is. We've seen a lot of companies miss out on a lot of the upside this cycle. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. Announcement. Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, Hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. So your secular thesis is very long oil, very long um, energy, you know, uranium as well. We, we haven't talked about, but uh, opportunistically, what what are you sort of seeing as uh, attractive ways to deploy capital? And I'll, I'll give an example. I think uh, last year, I don't know exactly when, but you know, the stock market had gone down a lot, and um, speculative technology companies had gone down a lot in value. Which, by the way, our first interview in December of 2021. Uh, you said, you know, uh, I'm paraphrasing that atrocious companies uh, will continue to have a bear market. And you were right. They did up until June. But I think, I don't know, correct me on the timing. Around that that point, you you wrote an article, I think it was called uh, Renting Some Ponzi's. And you identified, this is not a business, these are not business models that I like, are long-term investing, but I'm seeing some opportunity here. Uh, so maybe you can talk about that. or And are you, are you having a similar thing where maybe this doesn't go fit in with my long-term thesis, but this is an opportunity. So I think as a trader, you trade what's moving. 
And I think you can hold your nose and buy frauds and Ponzi schemes and all other stuff. Uh, you know, there's these moments in time when uh, financial conditions uh, loosen and there's a lot of liquidity and Ponzi schemes tend to do really well. And, you know, I think a lot of investors lie to themselves and they, you know, they, they, they pretend like they understand these and that they're real businesses because they build financial models and they, they treat it like a real business when they should just say this is a Ponzi scheme run by criminals. But these criminals are really good at stock promotion and we could ride this for a little bit, especially when you have regulators that have abdicated all responsibility for regulating the financial markets. And we had a moment like that. Well, we've had a couple of moments, but, um, you know, we, we had a moment in uh, 2022 at, at the end of the summer. And you have to understand the hedge fund cycle, the pension fund cycle, which is that they, there's redemptions and they ask for their money back. And they tend to be at the end of June and, and a much bigger cycle at the end of December. And at the end of June, a lot of Ponzi schemes, uh, very liquid, uh, well-known Ponzi schemes traded down dramatically. I thought this was due to uh, pension funds redeeming from uh, the sort of hedge funds that own Ponzi schemes. And so we bought some Ponzi schemes and I put out a blog post and I said, I think this is kind of the bottom in Ponzi schemes for a while. And, you know, it, it, Ponzi schemes stopped going down and then people who were short had to cover uh, and they went up a lot. And in a you know, month, month, two months, we, we made a lot of money long Ponzi schemes. And it's kind of embarrassing to say how much money we made because it's a lot, but um, we were long things that uh, won't be around in a couple of years. I mean, some of them have already gone bankrupt. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think you have a, a toolbox as an investor and there's, uh, you know, you, you reach in, you grab the right tool and there's moments in time for almost every tool. And no one should ever say, like, I'm, I'm too proud or, you know, anything like that. Like, you, you play with your toolbox. What tools in the toolbox are you looking to grab right now? I think cash is really good here. <laughs> I think I think it's going to get really bad. Um, you know, uh, people are bearish. Uh, I get that. I mean, the bull thesis right now on the markets is everyone's bearish, but sometimes everyone's just right. And you know, if the Federal Reserve keeps telling you they plan to break stuff, well, I kind of take them at their word. They have a long history of breaking stuff, and maybe you should just be bearish. And you know, we don't short. We we don't we, we don't short much. Uh, but what we do is we take our exposure down so that when something breaks, we have plenty of room on the balance sheet to buy stuff really cheap. And, you know, I, I think people have been bearish for a year now and it's been the right call. The market's you know, gone down. It's gone up a little, gone down. But I don't see what makes the market go up. And I can see a lot of things that make it go down. So it seems like a pretty terrible time to own businesses that aren't in the energy sector because the energy sector is, you know, kind of near the bottom of its uh, cyclical cycle. whereas you know, everything else is kind of in the second or third innings of its cycle on the way down. And so, no, I, I think the thing in the toolkit right now is just, you know, running lower gross and waiting for opportunities. And I feel like there's way too many people in my industry who look at the world and they have this view that, oh, people are paying me fees, so we got to be long stuff. And, uh, you know, I, that, that's not always right. I mean, people pay you fees uh, so you don't lose their money. Like, you know, it's okay to sit there and wait and say, this is just a bad time to be an investor. And I think right now is a pretty terrible time to be an investor in most things outside of energy. So you think the Fed hasn't broken something uh, systemic yet, but that they could do that soon? I mean, they, they keep promising that they will. I mean, listen to Powell. He keeps saying, we're, we're going to cause a recession. And I think he's upset that the American economy is rather resilient and 
you know, he hasn't been able to break anything yet. And so he just keeps, you know, turning the knob until something breaks and he's really proud of it. <laughs> you know, he's, he, he, he keeps telling you he plans to break stuff. And if they take interest rates high enough, they will succeed. And so I, I just don't see any reason to be buying stuff, uh, you know, any, especially anything that's even remotely uh, tethered to what happens with financial assets and anything tied to interest rates. I mean, that, that's the sort of stuff that uh, Powell's targeting because he can't really target wages and job creation and unemployment. Like those are out of his control. So he's going to, you know, go after the stuff he can control, which is just raising interest rates. Uh, Harris, what do you think is a common mistake that you've seen other investors make? Maybe the mistake that you yourself have made that you think, man, if people cannot do this, they have a much better chance of being successful. Oh, don't, don't buy junior mining stocks. <laughs> like never touch those things. <laughs> like kryptonite, they'll destroy your portfolio. <laughs> but um, no, I think uh, people just don't do enough work. Uh, they, they don't, I feel like people don't take enough of a step back from the world. And, you know, I, I talk to my dad, he's not a finance guy. He's just a real world guy and say, dad, this is what this company says they do. Does this make sense? Does this seem like it's a good business to be in? How does this business get hurt? And I feel like way too many people look at a spreadsheet and they're just like, yep, it's a hockey stick or that's five times earnings. That's cheap. I mean, five times earnings doesn't tell you if it's cheap or expensive. You got to figure out what it's going to look like in two or three years from now. And I feel like way too many people live in their little closed world of spreadsheets and analyst models and they never go out into the real world and just say, like, does this make sense? Is this a good business? Like, what would it be worth if I bought 100% of it? I mean, Warren Buffett talks about it and everyone kind of nods and then they go home and do the exact opposite. Hmm. Right. And Kevin, there's a phenomenon where, you know, talked about Sandridge, for example, just picking that. You bought that at a dollar when it was trading at very distressed levels. It later went above $20. I feel like a lot of people, perhaps some people listening to this, bought Sandridge when it was at $20. How do you be someone who buys it at a dollar instead of buying it at $20? Well, I mean, buying it at $20 might not be a bad investment either, though it's, it's gone down since then. Um, no, you have to be really patient. I mean, look, I don't feel like uh, it was particularly distressed when I bought it. They had $2 a share of cash and they were profitable and it traded for a dollar. You didn't have to make heroic assumptions. They had no debt. Like, you know... I don't want to say the total worst case scenario, but, you know, likely realm of possibility was it was worth at least two dollars. And there was a pretty good chance it was worth more. And, you know, it, I spoke to a lot of friends of mine in the energy sector and they kept telling me how, you know, Tom Ward uh, was a bad uh, CEO. He wasn't even the CEO anymore. Or, you know, the, the Mississippi Lime's a terrible asset. Yeah, it's a terrible asset, whatever. Like everyone told me what was wrong with it, but I already knew that and it was in the price. And you get these situations a lot where something's really, really cheap and everyone just has this preconceived notion about it. I, I think that the trick is just to sit there patiently and wait for something really easy. You know, you, you wait for layups, you run a really concentrated portfolio and you don't make mistakes. And I, I, it goes back to what, you know, what I said a little bit ago. I mean, right now it seems like a terrible time to buy most assets. So why are most people fully invested? It makes no sense. I mean, why do people go out there and buy unprofitable tech stocks two years ago? Like, I, I don't really know. You know, they did it though. And, you know, 
I think people just need to stop and think and buy the right things. I think the other mistake a lot of people make, and it's kind of crazy really, is they say, what's going to happen in the news tomorrow? Okay, this bank might fail. It might you know, succeed. What's going to happen in the non-farm payroll number? What's the CPI print? And they're going to buy and sell stocks and buy puts and hedge stuff. And for what reason? Just buy a good company with a good, strong tailwind and go to the beach. I mean, it's, it's way more fun than staring at your screens and you're probably going to make more money. Like, I, I still don't understand why all these people focus on all these things that are, you know, so the, the CPI comes in wrong. It goes up. As stuff goes up, it goes down. Like, at the end of the day, does it matter to your company? Probably not. So, like, why do stuff? But I feel like people just want to play with their mouse all day. So, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That's This is a really simple business that because people are trying to sell you stuff, they try to make it really hard. Buy really good companies at a fair-ish price, uh, preferably a cheap price, but buy good companies with strong tailwinds and don't screw it up. And I feel like everyone just wants to focus on screwing stuff up. Mm -hmm. And what if that very good company goes down in price? A lot of people say, oh, take your take your pain. The market is telling you something. Other people say, hey, if you liked it and it's getting cheaper, buy more. What, oh, you what, buy what, more. I mean, yeah. if they give you something for less than it's worth, you buy more. And if it gets even cheaper, you sell something else and you buy more. Um, I mean, that's your only edge. I mean, remember the guy who bought oil at 120, got a margin call and sold it yesterday at 65. I mean, he's doing it all wrong. You know, he should have been buying more. Right. Well, uh, Harris, it's been a great hearing hearing your thoughts. You, you say that you should look for a layup. It sounds like one of the very few layups that you see right now is is oil and this uh, oil stock that you mentioned. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say Journey Energy is a layup, uh, but if you buy something for less than the PDP and management executes, I mean, it's going to be worth at least PDP, you know, assuming the oil price uh, doesn't collapse. And I don't think the oil price is going to collapse. And I think there's a pretty good chance the oil price goes higher and management buys more stuff really cheaply or they'll just buy their own shares cheaply. So no, I think it's, it's a great way to play oil and it's one of my ways of playing oil. Well, Harris, we'll leave it there. Uh, thanks so much for sharing your view at, at a time where things are moving so fast. I also just want to say uh, you have a subscription product for, for hedge funds called Kedem, Cuppy's Event Driven Monitor, which if you are into stocks that are you know may not be part of the S&P 500 that experience uh, you know, special events, oh, the CEO is doing this, they have a special rights offering. If, if you're into that, you want to do the work, you know, and I, I get it, so I, I know. I do recommend it, and it's very good. Is there, is there, how could people find Kedem? And uh, yeah, tell, tell us a little bit more about Kedem. Well, go to kedm.com and take a free trial. Um, we write some macro commentary, and then we're tracking uh, over 25 event-driven strategies. Uh, you know, all the opportunity in this world comes from some sort of inflection, and corporate events often lead to inflections, whether it's CEO change or you know, privatizations, demutualizations, spinoffs, like all these things then they change the trajectory of the business. You know, you have a business that had a CEO and, you know, he wasn't so good. And the new guy comes in, he might be worse, he might be better. And he might have a whole different way of looking at the business, but the, the company's going to go in a different direction. And as a result, you know, a lot of value could be unlocked or maybe a lot of value destroyed. We're not telling you which, <laughs> you know, we're just telling you, hey, this just happened, you know, go spend time and figure it out. Um, there we go. Cuppy, thanks so much. Thanks everyone for watching. Hey, thanks for having me on. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro 
or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and Blockworks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.